0: So we are on the doorstep of Advent, but I'd like to reverse our flow for a moment. My apologies to those of us who were here for High Eucharist yesterday because we were veering into Advent and I want to take us backwards to the text from Sunday. It's fitting in that sense because we are at the end of our liturgical year and the text from Sunday is about the end of time and engages us in the last judgment according to Matthew's Gospel. So we didn't use that text yesterday, uh, so allow me to do so this morning. I I want to do so for, I guess, a few reasons. In part, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the whole story, its interpretation, is a bit autobiographical for me. Um, In parts of my journey, I guess I can point to communities of interpretation that I've been part of who have seen this as a text of angst. At other points uh, in my life, I have grown to appreciate this text as a compelling and, and a uh, open mandate for my own vocation. And for many, the text is puzzling and it's complicated. So I want to touch on a few of those elements this morning. Let's start with the angst. So this is a text of angst, or at least it can be. There are a few Christian communities, I think, into which Matthew 25 lands without some kind of tension. The colour, the drama, the startling vision of this passage rivals Dante. It can leave its reading community a bit troubled and I think uncomfortable. Only Matthew offers this massive judgment scene at the end of Jesus' teaching ministry. Why does Matthew want these to be the final teaching words of Jesus? Whereas the preceding um, three judgment parables use metaphorical language and teach us to be alert for Jesus' return, in this passage, the end is not about trying to discern or decode apocalyptic signs and language. We're pulled back to simple action and grounded in love. However, the text can vex, I think, almost any priest or preacher or New Testament interpreter and even a Christian social justice worker, because it's a message appears to be, surprise, this is all about life and death and you got it wrong. So you can see where the angst might come from, especially in the community I grew up in, in a small pietistic denomination rooted in the... uh, immigrant towns and farms of the western prairies. This was a community that was compelled to read all biblical texts through their constructed Pauline lens, which included otherworldliness and focused on salvation by grace alone, and was a bit dualistic in its orientation. As a youth in that environment, it took me a while to understand that this text so bedeviled my community and its pastors that they would often ignore it and others like it but i remember as a young lad in a bible study through the whole book of matthew we got to this section and i asked what i thought was the obvious questions so why don't we ever help with the soup kitchen downtown like the other churches and why don't we offer shelter and is it possible that we could visit the prison i've never been there Well, I was told in no uncertain terms that those were things that the Liberals do. And this was the 1960s, so Liberals, of course, could have been code for a lot of things, including unbaptized heathen or even communists. But I was deeply dissatisfied in that that moment. If this was a text of angst such that, if taken seriously, it could blow apart my community's central hermeneutic, Um, there was something wrong with the interpretation of the text, I thought. I began to realize that Matthew's Jesus could not speak only metaphorically. How was it that my early interpretive community spiritualized entirely this stunning set of criteria for the final judgment? So this was an ethnic community that was also deeply wounded by Stalinism, by their status as refugees and by their World War II experiences. And they needed eschatological justification of their sufferings. They needed to know that in the end, life would make sense and would be rebalanced by God in their favor at the final judgment. And this text did not quite provide that comfort for them. It did in fact leave them slightly terrified that they like the sheep and the goats, might not know their end and which side of the final judgment would claim them. So the dangerous part of Matthew 25 for my childhood community, it's that everyone in the story was surprised. There was no obvious and easy algorithm available, no system, no logic for the judgment available to the sheep and the goats. Suddenly everyone is standing bewildered. When did this happen? I don't understand. So to that community, Jesus was saying, you think you've got it figured out? Think again. When I left with my cohorts as youth from that community in our later teens and headed off towards the Jesus movement, I suppose we left in part because we felt overwhelmed by their particular Pauline lens of interpretation and a bit underwhelmed by the gospel readings offered through that lens. Fortunately, though, the text evolved for me in my own understanding into a puzzling and a challenging text. A few years ago, I published a bit of commentary on various parts of Matthew. You'll be pleased that I referenced Terry, um, who was writing about mountains while living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. There's a man of vision anyway that's not why my second era with this text in the second era that i began to enjoy its puzzles for me as a gospel interpreter matthew 25 sort of began its rehabilitation for me through its many and wondrous challenges to my own vocation in theology and in community development and the questions about this text are big and juicy is it a parable or not about the final judgment who are the people in the story. Who are the panta ta ethne, all the nations? Who are the least of these, my brothers and sisters? And provocatively, is Jesus' final judgment of the goats on the basis of their lack of good works? Conversely, did Jesus actually give the kingdom to the sheep on the basis of their good works? Wonderful questions. Uh, To that, I would add that during my time in East Africa, a Turkana elder added another question about this passage. He said, what kind of a pastoralist would prefer sheep over goats anyway? (laughs) He was convinced that Matthew's Jesus, Jesus had made a fundamental error in livestock judgment. So there's a long and a wonderful tradition of interpretation around this text, and it seems to, rotate around a couple of poles. There's the specific pole in which Matthew's Jesus may be employing this judgment scene specifically to defend the beleaguered and the vulnerable disciples of his own community from their treatment by local Gentiles. And at the other pole, which is more inclusive and broad, Matthew's Jesus may be giving us permission to become more broadly inclusive about how all the nations are treating all the little ones across the complete range of Christianity and all of humanity. Of course, I, I have somehow managed ultimately to embrace both poles of these interpretations, historically and contemporarily. And in many ways, this text has become foundational and compelling for my own understanding of mission. I suppose the real exhilaration of this text arrived in my release from my earliest community's readings that probably denied its power and over-spiritualized its meaning. This text became a raison d'etre a few years ago for me and my own team's international mission because it provided in very clear terms, an unimpeachable validation from Jesus' own lips, that the simplest actions of relief, compassion, development, advocacy have all kinds of consequences, not simply socioeconomic, but perhaps even eternal. And in that sense, the text and this understanding opened up a series of ahas for me. Let me conclude with those. It's debatable, and it is debated, but perhaps God actually does really have a preferential option for the poor. And what does that mean for us? Like Matthew, James, Paul, and Luke, all speak of the poor preferentially, and we all know Matthew's texts that are concerned about hoi and the least of these, and the children, and becoming like them. When Jesus in this text, the king, employs these final judgment criteria, did you serve the hungry? Did you serve the thirsty? Did you serve the naked, the sick, whoever is in prison? Jesus there is actually acting from an essential characteristic of God's own character, God's bias for the marginalized and the vulnerable. For me, this was a large aha in my ministry and vocation. But I think I also began to see that being discipled by Jesus means full engagement with and for the poor. There is no other way if we take this text seriously. As James Forbes has stated, nobody gets to heaven without a letter of reference from the poor. You see, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I also began to realize that the services here are so basic in the complicated world of development that I was part of for decades. This was a refreshing breeze from the Gospel. Long time ago Chrysostom was the first, I think, to point out that we don't read here that I was sick and you healed me. I was in prison and you liberated me. Big miracles are not happening here. Small simple services are happening. And yet it's precisely, I think, in these little ministries that the miracle of the big mystery according to Jesus is happening, human salvation and transformation. I'm pretty sure that no other text in scripture honors as much the simple service of basic human needs. Jesus surprisingly describes how people who help the wretched In even the most earthy ways attend, perhaps unwittingly, to their own salvation. They don't even realize that it's going on. So for me, and I think for us, this teaching has large theological and pastoral consequences. Jesus opens up the gates of heaven to the simplest people in the world he makes his kingdom accessible, not simply to the great movers and shakers, who actually may be surprised in this story, but to all the little doers. Where in this text are the great preachers, the speakers, the healers, and the miracle workers? So for me, this text is Jesus' final explicit discussion of a very basic and final question. What is our responsibility to each other, to creation, and to God? And Jesus' answer is love, as already discussed foundationally earlier in Matthew. So can I allow myself, can we allow ourselves to participate in such a simple gospel? to be swept up by its deep, Christocentric focus on the vulnerable. May God give us the strength to do so. Amen.